This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Extreme heat can lead to all sorts of health conditions and in some cases can even lead to death. So knowing where surface temperatures are hottest, that's important to guide policy and emergency response to build resilience in the face of a warming planet. And we're getting a boost. Last Friday, dozens of citizen scientists mapped temperatures and humidity levels in neighborhoods across the city. This was in collaboration with a National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration program that trains residents to map heat inequities. So joining us now is Dulce Garduño, a volunteer with the Heat Watch 2023 project. Welcome to Reset. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Also with us is Kyra Woods, uh, project manager for Chicago's Office of Climate and Environmental Equity and an organizer for the Heat Watch project. Welcome back. Thanks so much. And Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert is here. She's the director of Loyola University Chicago's Baumart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sasha. I'll start with you. Uh, tell us where we currently get information about temperatures throughout the city. Yeah, and the key thing, actually, I think is the way you asked the question, it's throughout the city. We we tend to get temperatures for Chicago. And uh, Chicago, as we know, is very large. It's highly varied. Mm-hmm. And typically, you'll get is one number for the whole city. Now, there are sensors you can look up, for example, the temperature at different beaches. And you can go through a little extra effort to try to find a little more information. There are some sensors and temperature gauges out there. But normally you'll get an answer for the full city. And that's not really a helpful answer for everyone all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, why does the temperature vary throughout the city, to your point? The temperature varies uh, for a lot of reasons. And a, a big part of that is how the city is built. What's what's there? So the sun is out. It's lovely. The heat comes down. What happens to it? Well, with dark surfaces, pavement buildings, that heat gets absorbed. And uh, those buildings and those surfaces can then radiate it out. So those areas will just be hotter. And they'll be hotter both during the day when the sun is out and they'll be hotter at night. That's the big picture urban heat island effect in a sense. Uh, But then also there are spots where you might have shade and you might not. Well, that's a big difference in what you're going to experience as a person. So the way you feel is probably that air temperature combined then with humidity to get the heat index. You hear that a lot. That's how you as a human will experience it because... When your body's trying to cool off, you'll perspire, but that is supposed to lead to evaporation. Right. When it's really humid, it doesn't work the same, so you feel hotter. Mm. say let's let's bring you in here. What made you want to participate in this and measure heat in Little Village? Um, well, I've been uh, listening how all the all the the work like being behind, and this is a very good experience for me and for my son. We we're trying to be together. Into the end, we couldn't, but it was. What's amazing be part of this initiative. What was the best part of it? Well, uh, spent a time together with the other persons, uh, like we never know, and going to the old streets, like why well, was amazing the first time to be in the sites, like never was thinking it's the super uh, uh, concrete part. Like, you know, checking, like, this is concrete, this is not learned. Mm-hmm. How more important it's having trees around to the city. How important it's um, to trying to get more trees in the city close to the, this uh, space full with concrete and metals and and uh, all these uh, uh, things, you know? Yeah, sounds like a great learning experience. And Kyra, how did this collaboration with NOAA actually come to be? 
Sure. So Chicago was actually one of 18 cities or communities that was a part of the uh, cohort with Heat Watch. And um, there, and I do say communities because actually there were some counties that were involved as well. Um, but this is a program that's been around since 2017. And NOAA um, actually works with a, another organization and national consultant, Kappa Strategies, to support those community areas in developing community-led urban heat island mapping uh, mm-hmm. campaigns. And so we applied uh, earlier this year and were uh, announced to be a part of the 2023 cohort. And it's a, we saw it at the city as a really great opportunity to ensure community participation in this broader conversation, um, as Dulce mentioned, that's really gripping the world. And so the active data collection and that science, uh, that scientist mindset is something that Chicagoans have in us. We are many times a part of different efforts, but we really wanted to ensure that the conversation around urban heat islands could be hyper-local and not just using um, satellite imagery or data that really averages and aggregates information as the full city. And so having that direct participation from residents was fantastic. So we're crystal clear. What what exactly were you measuring? Sure, that's a great question. So volunteers were given a sensor that would be mounted on their cars to measure humidity and temperature specifically. And those two metrics allow us to get a good sense of what the heat actually feels like, that heat index. So not just what the thermometer reads, but these other elements like humidity or even airflow uh, impact what it feels like. So the sensor measures temperature, humidity, location, and time as well. As a part of the activation, we had three separate shifts throughout the day, morning, afternoon, and evening, because we know that not just with the setting and the rising of the sun does the temperature change, but also some of those other elements related to land use that Mm -hmm. Karen and uh, Dulce mentioned can impact what the actual temperature feels like or what it feels like in the air. Yeah, Karen, I'll get you to piggyback off that and give us sort of a complete understanding here of, of heat. You know, when we talk about surface temperature, humidity, mercury, and also put it in context of climate change, right? I mean, it seems like there's a bit of a cycle here. There can be. And uh, certainly when we're talking about the urban heat island and this idea of these human-built surfaces retaining heat and making parts of our world hotter, cities tend to be hotter because of this. And then parts within cities can be hotter still. And that's what's so interesting about this work, both that it engaged residents in sense to think about what parts of the city might be hot and then to actually capture the data. But we'll we'll get interesting information in a few months, but it will provide a finer point into which parts of the city are hotter and which parts are less hot. And in the big picture, when you're hot, the the best thing you can do is be in a place that's cool, and that is typically air conditioning. And so the the long-term big picture global cycle is the world is increasingly becoming hot. There's also a lot of population growth in places globally that are hot. Well, to be safe, people will need some air conditioning. And if that air conditioning is powered by fossil fuels, you're then creating more carbon dioxide, which can exacerbate the climate challenge. Yeah, so air there's conditioning, a, which isn't always great for the environment. Yeah, so there can be a, a big behind-the-scenes challenge, which is why it's so important to really understand what we can do now to make sure that our residents are cool. Uh, there are lots of different strategies. Air conditioning is absolutely going to play a part here. And then long term, we've got to make sure that that air conditioning is not powered by fossil, that it's powered renewably. Dulce, I understand that you have also been part of planning this project. So tell us what kind of feedback you gave the city about what parts of your community needed to be mapped. Um, 
Well, we this is this is a hard part because we have just some time, and uh, we want to spend uh, a lot of time in the in the specific areas. But we we trying to do the best, and for us it was it was an amazing job, and I think so we cover everything or almost everything. And uh, I've been I've been working in Pilsen, and Pilsen have the um, this festival uh, last 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 um, weekend, so it was yes. a little tricky part. Like we being afraid, but into the end, everything was amazing. Kyra, can you jump in here and just talk about how you incorporated feedback from communities like Pilsen uh, and yeah. in developing the routes to be sure, measured? Sure. So Dulce's example of the festival is actually a really great example of direct community feedback that was helpful for designing the routes. We uh, initially opened a website um, to the general public to populate a map of Chicago with places where people wanted us to measure, Mm -hmm. where they could name the places they wanted us to measure. And that could be a cool place in the neighborhood or a hotter place. And people were even able to leave descriptions of why they thought it was impactful. So after crowdsourcing these various pinpoints, we were able to uh, share that with our, our consulting team and, you know, share it with the other communities that were a part of the cohort. And the Kappa Strategies took those various pins and then developed 29 routes that covered the entire city. And so from those pins, we got the routes, and then we brought those routes as campaign organizers back to our community partners that are that were assisting in the planning to say, okay, did we get it right? Did the, does this route go by those pockets in your community that you think are very important, whether it's because there's high industry activity or maybe there's a very big park that you know uh, you gather at and that is the place where people go to stay cool or there's a splash pad. So we wanted to be able to show both warm places mm-hmm. and cool places so that we could have that uh, that difference be very visible on our final map. And so tying it back to the festival, we didn't know exactly what date we were going to choose for the me- for the actual measuring. So yeah. there was this moving target that was difficult. And so that feedback that, you know, Dulce and other residents could directly provide us to say, if we were to do this on this weekend, we'll need to reroute because we won't be able to go down that street because it's blocked off. It was that type of granularity that was very helpful. Um, and we weren't able to get all of the things knocked out. And that's where volunteers had to, you know, think yeah. autonomously and independently to navigate um, on the day of. But having that input from the very beginning allowed us to ensure that we did our best, at least, to measure uh, places across a single community that were both warm and cool, as well as to take into consideration we only had an hour long mm-hmm. for volunteers to navigate those routes for each shift. So we wanted to cover some good territory um, each time. Yeah, and you were waiting for a day that was above 86 degrees, too, right, to be That's able to correct. launch the program. So yeah. a lot of things you had to measure on a day without a lot of cloud coverage. Why was that? Well, ultimately, when you have a clear, sunny day, that sun uh, can really be felt and the heat that's emanating from that can be felt versus if you have cloud coverage where it would be cooler. I think another variable that we didn't anticipate during the springtime that became really critical and challenging to anticipate was the smoke from the wildfires in Canada. And so while there weren't 
clouds on some days, on the days where we did have excessive smoke coverage, that also artificially uh, cooled some of, you know, cooled the day. And so uh, cloud coverage was a concern, the actual temperature crossing that 86 uh, degree threshold. And then also we needed a low chance of precipitation. And so we we have been playing this very delicate game of... You know, in this summer was really wet, right? So there were some days that we crossed 86 degrees, but there was a 70% chance of a thunderstorm, and it happened. Um, and so we we were kind of gambling last week, but we picked a great day. Mm-hmm. We had a thunderstorm in the morning, um, and those volunteers who showed up for that first shift at 5.30, we were all in a holding pattern. Some people had gone out to the beginning parts of their routes. And, and we're just kind of waiting for the rain to pass. Wow. Some stayed at their volunteer hub waiting for the green light. Um, and it all some got done. People, it all got done. So <laughs> thank you to the volunteers who waited <laughs> those few hours so that we could get data for that first shift. If you're just tuning in, this is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're discussing heat and how it's not experienced the same way across the city. Chicago's participating in this program with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's training residents to gather data on temperature and humidity to map inequities and to show where surface temperatures are hottest. Our guests are Kyra Woods, who's an organizer of the Heat Watch 2023 project, Dulce Garduño, who's been volunteering, and Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. What excites you about this project, Karen? You were smiling throughout that uh, description. Oh, yeah. This this project is in- incredibly cool, to throw that word out there. And... Uh, President, it's so important is there's a there is a decent amount of high level information about different parts of this city and other cities having temperature variations. There have been studies that have mapped it back to historic redlining where communities have been disinvested in for generations. And the residents now uh, reflect demographic diversity where you have black and brown communities typically in places or more likely to be in places that have less tree cover and that actually are hotter generally. This project, though, is getting really, really specific. Mm-hmm. Residents got to say which parts of their community they wanted data on. Residents actually are driving the routes, and they're actually helping to gather this data. And it's going to be hyper, hyper local. So we can take some of those higher level conversations yeah. and get really specific on what parts of the city really are hotter. And then you can be concrete about what you can do in terms of possible interventions and solutions. But you also do it in a backdrop where a lot of your residents are engaged. And when Kyra was talking about rain in the morning, when we were catching up beforehand, she was talking about the many of the volunteers got to hang out and get to know each other. Mm-hmm. So you're building a whole collection of people who are engaged in this, and they're going to create the real data that and, can and help And mentioned that, too. Yeah. That, that was one of the, the best parts, is, is gathering with folks that she had never talked to before. Uh, you know, Noah is going to be crunching the data that was collected in Chicago, along with other participating cities. I hear we should have results back in the fall. I mean, what do you hope, Dulce, that the data is used for to address the needs in in your community? Um, Well, for beginning to change uh, the bad things, you know, now we have, we detect the, the, the critical things. So we need to plant in trees. We need to change the ecosystem for being more natural. And this is this is the right way for for building better community. The the data, Kyra, could it be used to sort of change the way our, our emergency response is right now when it comes to dangerous heat conditions? 
opportunity there. And I, that's what excites me. Um, I won't say most. I think there are a lot of different parts about this project that are exciting. But we can have both a very hyper-local conversation, you know, and I think some of, I know that those are already afoot. And, and after Heat Watch uh, and the campaign day last Friday, I think the conversation is, continues to pick up speed. But also we can think about as a city, um, as a partner to other levels of government, as a partner to other agencies like um, FEMA or the Red Cross, how can we really either t better tailor our tools for community um, or reevaluate so that we are uh, equipped with very clear community-inspired or community-led interventions um, that can work in parallel with mm -hmm. those existing structures and systems that we have. Some might say, oh, this was just one day. How, you know, how telling is this data going to be? What do you say to that? I think that, that's a, a fair critique, I, and I've, I've heard it all this summer. It is a snapshot, but that's okay, right, That that this is... Um, a conversation starter. It is an awareness building opportunity. You know, so much starts when people get together and have an opportunity to talk about the similarities and differences mm -hmm. between their communities or the similarities and differences from their community when they were a young person versus now as they raise their family. Yeah. I think there, this is a, an evolving conversation as we talk about the types of interventions. Uh, we've had some fantastic lessons learned. Um, Unfortunately, due to the tragedy of our heat wave in 1995, yeah. and some cities, many cities looked to Chicago after we developed our emergency operation plans and a task force to be ready for the next um, extreme weather event. But now it's 2023, and there's an opportunity to say, hey, are these strategies still working? Are yeah. residents taking advantage of them? And where there are gaps, how can we... Uh, show up to meet the moment in 2023, sure. given the backdrop of climate change, as well as um, the different ways that we stay connected as community. Those those strategies look different than they were in 1995 yeah. versus now or even pre-COVID alone. Karen, leave us with this. I mean, how does this fit into other kinds of measurement that we know that are happening in Chicago like and the wealth of citizen science opportunities that there are in this city and beyond? Yeah, I think this is a great example of residents being able to shape not just the solutions that will come, but the data that will drive those solutions. And uh, we've seen huge growth in opportunities for residents and citizens to be involved in, in tracking different parts of nature, to being involved in global studies. Mm -hmm. What's particularly important about this is this is really, really local, but it's linked to this national program that NOAA is running. So our residents here in Chicago are going to shape the data that can inform not just Chicago, but it can inform the nation. That is Karen Weigert, Reset Sustainability Contributor, Kyra Woods, Project Man Manager for the Office of Climate and Environmental Equity and an organizer for the Heat Watch Project and volunteer Dulce Gardunio. Thank you all. Thanks.